Women Make Waves is an NC Fit podcast. What's up, listeners? Welcome back to another episode of the Women Make Waves podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today, Bloom and I are sitting down with Dr. Stacey Sims as she explains to us all about why women are not small men. We talk about nutrition and training, hormonal birth control and its effect on recovery, and all the things women should take into account when fueling our bodies and training. Speaking of training, if you have not already, be sure to download the NC Fit app. You've got four different tracks every day in your pocket and a community of accountability buddies that are ready to race you up the leaderboard. While you are in the app, downloading all the things you need to download, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review on today's show. You're already there. It takes you 10 seconds and it delivers a smile to both my face and Bloom's. So make sure you download the app, make double sure that you rate and review the show. And until next week, enjoy Stacey Sims. Welcome back to another Women Make Waves podcast. I am your host, Bloom. I'm here with Linz and Dr. Stacey Sims, researcher, speaker, women's health expert, author of amazing books, hoster, hostess, host of um, the Feisty Menopause Summit, which I definitely want to talk about. So thank you so much for being here. And we love to kick off every show with this very important question. How are you making waves? As if it wasn't obvious enough by all the things I just said. <laughs> um, I think I'm making waves by finally standing up in the sport and fitness world and saying women are not small men and trying to normalize the conversation around menstrual cycle, around menopause, how we need to look at women, how we need to train, how we need to refuel. Um, yeah, so it's been an interesting journey and I'm excited to see it all really like in the past year and a half, maybe two years, people really getting that buzz around menstrual cycle and, and women being a little bit different and taking care of care of our different needs. We just had um, Lindsay Matthews from BirthFit on the show, and we talked all about training around your cycle and so many questions that selfishly Arielle and I just had about our own cycles. It kind of turned into like our own or like, hey, listeners, you can listen to us ask all the questions we're curious about with our bodies. So I'm sure that we're going to ask you just as many. Um, but I'm really curious how you got into that space, how you kind of found your voice, especially when exactly what you were saying, like women have been told to train like little men forever. So what was kind of the spark that got you talking about this topic and where did you break into the space? Well, it's kind of like a, a parallel pathway, I guess. Um, when I started my undergraduate work and was like the only volunteer in the metabolism lab. So I was the one who was always doing the experiments, but often my results were thrown out because they were an anomalies. And I started going, well, why is it an anomaly? And because it was always being compared to men's data, that's why I first got the inkling that most of the stuff we were learning was based on men. And being an athlete, it didn't sit well. So that was kind of like the beginning of it all of really starting to ask those questions, why? So as an athlete and starting to excel more on the elite level and trying to do as best as I could and help my teammates, as well as being an academic, really digging in and trying to find the answers and then not finding the answers and creating the experiments to get the answers. But then the cumulative of being able to find a voice is when I stepped away from academia and launched a, a sport nutrition company. And our tagline when we launched a women's specific line was women are not small men based on how I would open lectures that some of my friends had heard um, trying to wake up undergrads in the afternoon when they were half asleep from lunch and uh, got a lot of backlash, a ton of backlash from saying that women had different needs, that our physiology was different, our hydration metrics were different. And this is like the first time that people heard it. So the trolls were obnoxious. The interviews were all like male oriented and I kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and really starting to get that women are not small men. And along that same kind of line, one of my friends who became a co-author was a really adamant um, fitness writer and athlete 
And she's like, we have to get your messaging out because she participated in a lot of my field experiments, saw the differences, knew that it had to get pushed out. So that's when um, Roar kind of became the idea into the book. So it was that four way into industry and all the experiences I had to realize how bad it was out there with all the misconceptions and how science wasn't being disseminated into industry that that was where I had to grow a backbone and be like, okay, wait a second. We have to get the voice out that women are not small men. And this is how we really started pushing it. And this was, how was my daughter? About nine years ago, because uh, we launched the company a month before I had my kid. Okay. <laughs> I don't so recommend here's it. The thing. <laughs> here's the thing. You, and you just hit the nail on the head. You said you had to grow the backbone to put this message out. And I'm just even thinking right now in the culture that we're in now, how difficult it is for women to be heard in the sea of men that is like every industry right now, right? Like now at least we have a little bit more, um, there's a little bit more hope. There's a lot more women um, making these types of waves. But nine years ago, that is yeah. like insane to me. And I'm just thinking even when I was, so when I was in college, it was five years ago. I'm like a baby. So it was like five years ago. And even in college, I was like one of very few women in my exercise science classes. So yeah. I'm, I'm trying to put that context into like nine years ago. How did you grow that backbone? Because that to me is amazing in itself. Um, I will admit that I experienced a lot of PTSD reactions to comments because of that experience. But um, as my husband and a lot of close friends would point out, I'm the kind of person that is too honest and I trust before it's violated. And so I'm like, I don't understand why you don't get the science. (laughs) It was just that push, right? So the more I was able to back things up with science and the more I was able to to work it into, as I retired from elite sport, still working with teammates who were becoming Olympians and really hitting the high high stages and them also saying, hey, I've changed my training up, I've changed my nutrition up, I've changed the way I do things because I'm not a man. So it was having the voice that wasn't just mine. And then when you have role models who are also saying it, it helps develop that voice. Um, and I couldn't, couldn't have done it myself. There's a lot of women around me who were in the background kind of supporting me up. So when I got really low, they'd be like, F it, you know, we got to keep pushing it, got to keep pushing it. So it's always a team. It's just, I never thought I would be the person with the voice. Um, and my mom, same, because when I was a kid, I was so shy. I would like cry and feel sick when we had a substitute teacher. It's just like, and now look at you, you're out there as like this voice of, of women in sport saying, hey, we need to be treated differently because all of the data is based on male data and the experiments are through a male lens. And yes, there's more and more research coming out that's showing that there are specific differences we need to be aware of across menstrual cycle, across oral contraceptive pill, across IUD, perimenopause, postmenopause. And if I don't step up and say something, then I'm like, well, who's going to do it? <laughs> You guys, everybody, yeah. we are a collective <laughs> voice. Yeah. Yeah. Bloom and I are always the ones that are like the woo. They call us woo woo. And we're like, no, we're just trying to tell you what our bodies are saying to us. Yes, exactly. Um, it might have to do with planets sometimes. Okay. But oftentimes it just has to do with my bleed. Anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> what was some of the research that you were doing that was being thrown out for being anomaly? What was some of the things that you were finding that are like these big, heavy hitting differences that are like, if women just knew, or they could make this nutritional change, or these massive areas of research that are getting thrown out, what were kind of those big tip of the iceberg things? Um, I think the first thing was really looking at um, fasted exercise between the low and the high hormone phases. So in the low hormone phase, my blood sugar and fatty acids were very similar to the guys that were on the treadmill with me. But in the high hormone phase, um, I was completely different. So they thought I didn't standardize properly. And I was like, no, I did. Here's everything the same. No caffeine, no alcohol, same food, everything standardized completely. And I did that, that type of trial. We did it 
six times and it happened twice during my high hormone phase and the other times were in the low hormone. And when you looked at the high hormone phase, those were very similar, but they kept throwing them out as anomalies. So that was like undergraduate. And I was like, well, you can't throw this out. This is, this is not an anomaly if it happens at least twice, right? Something's going on. And then as I started getting more into the research and segued into doing my postdoc at Stanford and had one hand in public health and one hand in human performance and seeing these trajectories of women and women's health and seeing like they were assigned to be a, a linear projection of aging, but we see this big, massive change in metabolism and risk factors around perimenopause and postmenopause, but it wasn't really accepted in the aging they just projected it as men do, as this linear aging. And I was like, it's not, because when we take women in their 40s and men in their 40s, and we have them do the same kind of protocol, depending on where women are in their 40s based on their hormones, their lactate and their VO2 is completely different from maybe a year ago. But men know. So it was this linear aging process that really started me going, wait a second. We also have to look at women and how they age, because they aren't the same as men. And we start seeing these things about metabolic shifts and resting metabolism being stable for 20 to 40 and then 40 to 60. I was like, in men, yeah. But for women, we have all these hormonal interplays that change up the way our bodies respond to fat and, and blood glucose and muscle building and bone density. And we need to take that into account, especially as the fastest growing athletic population is this master's female athlete. So those were the two big things, early career looking at me, metabolic changes. And then after I finished, you know, PhD was on fluid balance differences between men and women in the heat, menstrual cycle differences. And that came out as a huge shift as well. And so trying to nail down like hydration is different. And then getting into public health and seeing that it was still the same concept in public health where they were just generalizing to women. So it was all these little pieces along the way of my academic career that I was like, it's bigger than just sport but I'm in sport, so I'm just gonna work on the sport aspect. So you touched a little bit on the differences between men and women in aging, and that has to do with menopause. And selfishly, I wanna ask you a bunch of questions about menopause because I have a bunch of clients going through menopause. Yeah. And so one thing that all of them have noticed is this like serious shift in energy levels. A lot of them were like ultramarathon runners, um, in their past lives, I say past lives because they're not doing it now, but it's something that they miss, you know, and they don't have that energy to continue doing those things. And I'm curious to know, and I think I know maybe the answer, but I would love to know kind of your, um, your knowledge, some piece of it around like how those energy shifts, um, are happening in our body when we go through menopause and what kind of things can people expect afterwards? Yeah. So the, the, um, I guess a big misconception is it's menopause and after where you have all the shifts, right? We know menopause is that one point in time that marks no periods for 12 months, but it's actually the four to five years before that one point in time where all the changes happen because you start having more anovulatory cycles, so you don't have progesterone. You start having surges of estrogen, and then sometimes not as much, <clears throat> and it becomes a ratio of estrogen-progesterone that's really super important. Because as these ratios change, then we start getting signalings for increasing the cereal fat, so that's why you get the menopause or more deep belly fat. We lose a stimulus um, for muscle protein synthesis because when we're thinking about the mTOR complex one, which is where you get the muscle protein synthesis, there's four unique pathways to stimulate it. But when you start losing your sex hormones, it becomes two. So we have to look at how are we going to stimulate those two pathways versus the four that we used to be able to stimulate. And then when we think about estrogen and how its effect on the neurotransmitters, we know that when estrogen flatlines, dopamine does too. When you start having changes in estrogen ratios, you start having changes in serotonin and serotonin production and the way that affects things. So we start seeing all these um, neurotransmitter changes and that affects our mojo and our energy levels. We also have a reduction in BDNF, which is your um, brain neurotrophic uh, peptide that really helps with brain health. It decreases as well. 
So we have all these metabolic shifts that are happening, not only from like body composition aspect, but also brain health aspect. So we take those two together and we're like, okay, what's going on with brain fog, lack of energy, poor sleep, body composition change. Then it becomes that deep, deep, deep fatigue. If we don't look at how are we changing our training and our nutrition to create the stress and create the recovery that the hormones used to do for us. Because when we start looking at all these different pathways that are now not being stimulated by estrogen receptors or progesterone receptors and the antagonists of the two hormones, then if we keep on the status quo, all the training and nutrition stuff that we've heard throughout the years, you don't get results. You just start becoming, as a lot of friends will say, you know, feeling squishy overnight where all of a sudden the changes come so you know, so fast. And unfortunately, in the mindset of a lot of women, it's I'm not training hard enough and I'm eating too much. So then they get into that low energy system and that low energy availability, which then perpetuates everything. So we kind of have to unpack it all and be like, okay, so what's the best thing to do? We know that we lose a lot of the fast twitch ability because estrogen stimulates the um, myosin activation, right? So if we don't have a lot of fast twitch or activation for muscle protein synthesis and, and neuromuscular stimulus, then we need to lift heavy because we need to get that neuromuscular connection again. If we're looking at how are we going to shift body composition and maintain insulin sensitivity, we have to look at plyometrics and um, sprint or high intensity interval training, not the long, slow distance stuff. So when you're combining those aspects with really good hits of protein before and after training, more so before, we're finding that protein before is more beneficial for getting muscle protein synthesis because you end up with more amino acids circulating with some protein dosing post. But if you miss that protein dosing post, as long as you've had it before, then you can still get these changes going in a positive manner. I know we're talking a lot now about menopause and the nutrition and training within that. Um, for, and this is me asking a selfish question now, I'm like, I'm not there yet. I'm not even no. with kids yet. Um, it, what is the nutrition then like, or most optimal nutrition for someone training in their like 20s to 30s, right? Like we might have kids on the horizon. We want to, I know Lindsay last show was talking about, um, you know, how we're setting ourselves up nutritionally and in a training sense for the five years before we even want to conceive. And I'm like, fuck, I'm so behind. But if I can catch up, <laughs> if I can yeah. catch up, what does that look like? Yeah. So the very first thing I, I tell people is like, you want, if you're not on um, any kind of hormonal contraception, you really want to make sure that you have a normal natural menstrual cycle, right? Because that's the first sign that you have a healthy system. Your endocrine system is working. You don't have any thyroid dysfunction. Your luteinizing hormone um, is still pulsing so that fertility is good. Even though we know that a lot of women who are training heavy, even if they're eating properly, if it's mistimed, we'll get into some more anovulatory states. So it's kind of watching. And this is why menstrual cycle tracking is so beneficial. Because then you can see like different changes that are occurring, right? <clears throat> so the next step after I tell people, you know, you want to track and see what your normal is. Um, it's more about the nutrient timing where we're looking at not doing fasted training because we know that women who do fasted training actually don't hit intensities they need to and they end up burning less fat because it, it mutes the fatty acid metabolism responses and it reduces fat metabolism at rest. So no to fasted training. So you want to fuel before and after. Um, and then the other interesting thing that's come up, um, one of my friends, Abby Smith-Ryan out of UNC Chapel Hill. She does a lot of supplement research and a lot of stuff based on menstrual cycle. Um, creatine. Creatine becomes really essential for women's overall health, regardless of age, but also for um, helping maintain a lot of the neuromuscular aspects, brain health, um, gut health, um, because anything that's high energetic, so if you're thinking about cognition, reaction, you're thinking about maintaining um, neuromuscular, sorry, neurotransmitter control to reduce depression and anxiety. Um, your gut in, in integrity. So if you're having GI issues around menstrual cycle or PMS, 
just three to five doses of creatine or three to five grams of creatine a day helps with all of that because women by the nature of being women have less creatine stores and we need it because we have a lot of, of high energetic activities that go on at rest. But the caveat of that is when you're dosing it and we know that in the high hormone phase is when you want to dose the creatine because that's when your body can uptake it most. But then the flip of that is iron. There's so many women who are low in iron, right? And you might be on the low end of normal. And if you're at the low end of normal and you're not dosing appropriately according to your menstrual cycle, you're not ever going to get on top of it. Because there's a, <clears throat> a, an enzyme called hepcidin. And after exercise, it comes up and inhibits iron absorption. Right before you bleed, iron, because your body's in an inflammatory state because of immune responses in the high hormone phase, hepcidin is elevated. As soon as you start bleeding and inflammation drops, hepcidin is downregulated. This is when you want to supplement with iron. So if you're supplementing with iron in the first 10 days of the low hormone phase, your body can absorb it. Other times it can't. So women who are looking at that low end of iron and trying to get on top of being anemic or low iron stores, it's really looking at when you're dosing the iron. So those are two things that have come up recently, not just about tracking your menstrual cycle and fueling to make sure you stay at a low energy availability, but also the two biggest things that happen with women is low iron or low iron stores. And we see this downturn of, of mood and, and gut integrity, especially with, with heavy training, right? So if we're dosing with creatine, then we cover both of those bases. And then it's just a feed forward. Okay. This was so much information already. <laughs> so I want to take a step back. Okay. Because <laughs> I know, right? Like, okay, pre-K pause for a second. Let's talk really quick about um i want to know a little bit more about kind of the training that you've been doing and what has been working for you in terms of your nutrition and what maybe some challenges have been since now you know all of this information yeah so my biggest challenge is when i'm super stressed i i don't eat i don't have an appetite i forget to eat right my husband's after me all the time even last night because last week was super super stressful and I at least remember to eat breakfast. So I think this is the first time I'm really explaining any of this because everyone thinks that I like, eat how I talk. Um, but I'm really bad at it. So it's a huge problem for me. But with training, because I'm in my mid-40s, so I've changed it up according to all the research that's come out. So I'm now all about intervals, lifting heavy, staying out of that moderate intensity, like gray zone, because I used to do Ironman. I used to race bikes. I used to spend a lot of time in that steady state stuff. But now I'm fitter and stronger and faster than I was in my 20s because I'm staying out of that. I'm fueling appropriately. So if I forget to eat meals, but at least I'm fueling for my training, I'll remember to eat before and after. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, to win. <laughs> um, so it's those small little things. And then if I know I have a, a training block coming up because I'll decide there's a bee in my bonnet to do like a hard gravel race, then I'll put in some beta alanine and some creatine just to be able to hit those higher training metrics because those higher training metrics mean that I can get better adaptations. Um, I'm not the best at it all. I still try to plan it according to menstrual cycle and, and I still have a pretty regular cycle and know like deloading before a period comes and that kind of stuff. But sometimes stress makes me go too hard in that time period. So. Oh yeah. I feel like super human right before my period. I'm like, and I know that might be like strange because people are like, I feel so like lethargic or I'm craving sweets. And I'm like, I'm going to lift a PR. <laughs> two days before the two days before I'm yes. like, yes, this is my training window. Yes. And I think and it's because the hormones have already dropped, right? They start to decline before you bleed. So the thought process, every woman feels a little bit different. So like Lizzie, you and I feeling bulletproof, boom, those hormones are coming down. And it's like, yes, I'm going out there, I'm going hard. And then the period comes and like, damn it. <laughs> oh yeah. I have like that moment where I'm cheering. I'm like, yeah, PR. And I'm like, it's coming. <laughs> I know. Exactly. She's knocking. <laughs> yes. Um, so that was something I also wanted to to back up because. I know that I can go so deep down the rabbit hole of 
biohacking and want, especially like with, I think a lot of the biohacking movement, right? Like last year, I mean, it's been trendy for a long time, but it seemed like everyone was talking about intermittent fasting last year. And I was like, it's just because y'all have been eating nothing but bread during the pandemic and you're trying to like just lose weight. But let's talk about, I love that you talked about the fact that women need to eat before and after training and also how that ties into um, kind of tracking your cycle. Cause we've talked about it a lot. We haven't really given people who maybe don't know what tracking your cycle, what that exactly means. So can we just give like a brief um, explanation of what cycle tracking is and then how best to fuel yourself throughout that tracking. Oh yeah. So we say day one is the first day bleeding. So if you mark that down anywhere, you put on a calendar, you know when your period starts, right? So then you can go point to point, day one to day one, and you have a general idea how long your cycle is. So that's like the, the very, very, very first start. But when we really talk about tracking your menstrual cycle, it's knowing when day one is. Knowing when you ovulate, so that's around day 12 to 14, depending on how long your cycle is, and then specifically where your high hormone phase is. So that's after ovulation as progesterone and estrogen start to come up, and then it ends when you start bleeding again. So most women's natural cycle is anywhere from 25 to 40 days. Now, when you're tracking, you'll understand when day one is to day one, so you'll know what the length of your cycle is. If you're a woman who has closer to a 40-day cycle, it's because your low hormone phase is longer. If you're someone who has um, a 21 day cycle, then that's something to investigate. Could be you have an ovulatory. But if you're someone who has a 25 day cycle, so it's a shorter end of cycle, means your low hormone phase is shorter. So it's really trying to figure out first, what's the length of your cycle? Is it normal over the course of three months? And then once you know what that is, you can start putting in your training metrics around it, when you feel really good, when you feel really flat. So you'll start to see patternings. And that's how Lindsay and I have figured out that we're bulletproof a couple of days before our period starts. The other time I'm bulletproof is like two days before ovulation. I'm like, yes, I'm right, you know, and then I feel really flat. But I figure that out because I'm able to track um, like my training metrics, um, HRV, sleep patterns over my menstrual cycle. So I can see the days where I can go really, really hard and days I need to pull it back. Um, And every woman's a little bit different. We know in general that you can train really hard in the low hormone phase and recover really well. Um, We have metrics that show, you know, because progesterone is lower, that our ability to hit high intensities and come back down and recover from that are really good. After ovulation, it becomes more steady state, and then you come more like a deload recovery until you feel bulletproof again. So those are the general schematics, and that's why we want to track. And so we have this idea of we can work with our hormones. Um, when we talk about nutrition, there is a metabolic shift. In the low hormone phase, uh, we are more like men, where we can access carbohydrate really well. Uh, our core temperatures are low. Uh, we cover well, um, we have more circulating amino acids available to us, um, our sleep patterns are much better, we get into more slow wave sleep. But after ovulation, it changes. And the fact that with an estrogen surge, uh, we get a signaling to conserve carbohydrate and start using more free fatty acids. And then as progesterone comes up, progesterone's main job is to break everything down. It's, it's trying to build uterine lining. So it's taking carbohydrate and shuttling it to the building uterine lining to have it very rich with glycogen. It's taking amino acids and shuttling it that way to build tissue, so it's very catabolic. While we're exercising as well, because estrogen is high, progesterone, shuttling, carbohydrate, we rely more on free fatty acids. So if we're looking at how are we um, recovering from from intensity sessions during the high hormone phase, it's protein and carbohydrate. If we have a longer high intensity session that we want to hit or even a sprint interval session, having some carbohydrate available during the session or topping up on carbohydrate before the session so that you have more blood glucose available. So it's just small shifts, but it's not massive. It's just understanding that when estrogen and progesterone come up, 
it's harder to access fuel and it's harder to recover. So we want to provide more carbohydrate in and around our training. We also want to provide more protein at regular intervals to counter some of those catabolic effects of, of progesterone. All right, ladies, if nothing else, mark day one of your period after this show and start tracking right. my girls. Um, my next question is, and I don't know if this ties into it at all. My gut tells me that it does. And I'm just curious, how does hormonal birth control then affect that? Right? Cause we're not creating, my understanding is it's not creating the same kind of like organic hormones that we would already be creating. There's kind of like a, a, a stop in communication between our brain and our sy different systems. So can you dive into that? And if hormonal birth control does affect exactly what you, the training and nutrition that you just kind of laid out? Yeah, for yeah, for sure. So when we talk about hormonal birth control, we have your combined oral contraceptive pill. And that's what most people think about when they think about um, hormonal contraception. So when we're talking about the combined oral contraceptive pill, um, estrogen and progesterone are are three weeks of active pills, and we have one week of a withdrawal pills. When you start taking the active pills, your natural system is downregulated. So it, it really inhibits and stops your own ovarian hormones from being produced. And so your hormone profile is steady state, except for the fact that when you take the pill, so say you take the pill in the morning, you have a spike of your hormones and then it drops off. So you have this like little wave-like pattern every day. So when we're talking about these wave-like patterns, this is why you have to take the pill every day at the same time of day to make sure that you have continuous protection. And this wave-like pattern also affects things like our um, heart rate, our breathing rate. We see that the first few days of taking the pill, women can recover really well. Their heart rate variability is really good. But after about day five, as these hormones start to accumulate, for the two weeks in the middle, you are compromised a bit in your recovery. So we have to be very cognizant of the fact we need to really emphasize recovery. And then the first two days of the sugar pill, you still have compromised recovery. And then after that, as those hormones start to get out of the system during the withdrawal bleed, you have your own natural hormones that are starting to come up. You have really good recovery. So when we talk about training according to an OC, we know that the OC also has more inflammation responses and more oxidative responses. So we have to be very cognate when we're on the OC to one, eat a better anti-inflammatory and antioxidant diet. So that's lots of high fruit and veg. Um, looking at increasing protein across the board because we have more of a catabolic response from the OC. And when we're thinking about training, it's the first week that you can do really high, high intensity and recover well. And then it's the last five days of the sugar pill that can do a lot of high intensity work. And it's in the middle that you have to moderate what you're doing to make sure you're recovering really well. It's not to say you can't do high intensity, it's not to say you can't do heavy lifting, but just know that you have to plan it so you can recover really well. Um, but in the bookends of the pills, you don't have to plan as well. You can still hit it hard. Confused. Is, well, no, I was literally sitting here like, oh my God, this is mind blowing. And I remember um, the first time I learned that um, hormonal birth control is not actually creating the same response in your body as your regular hormonal fluctuations would. And that to me, I think was kind of a mind blowing moment because it's one of those things where you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know that a lot of women are educated on the actual effects of hormonal birth control the way that we really should be before we're kind of suggested to take it. And I know that was the case for me. Um, and I'm also, I'm just kind of curious to know your perspective on it because I read Roar and I love how you, um, you went through kind of a breakdown of, okay, if you're taking this type of birth control, like here's something to think about. If you're taking this type, here's something to think about. Um, I, yeah, I just, I want to know your thoughts on it because that to me, I think was something that really hit me hard when I learned that yeah. um, all of these effects were going to happen. And I just kind of 
did, I didn't know them when I was 17 and was suggested to go on birth control. I know I get really frustrated with um, GPs because they're not that well educated about the OC. So a lot of times you'll have a young girl who comes into the office, she might be 15 or 16, going through puberty, tail end of puberty, um, concerned about weight gain, heavy, heavy bleeds or missed periods or regular periods, um, concerned about her skin and the automatic response is, we'll put you on an oral contraceptive pill, it'll solve everything. Once you go off the pill, right, those issues are still there. It doesn't solve anything. What it does is it downrights your natural hormones and it creates a completely artificial hormone profile. So it's not solving the issues. We know that if you have bad skin issues, then see a dermatologist because there are really fantastic ways of, of mediating that with a dermatologist. If you have really heavy, heavy bleeding and lots of painful meharanja, we call it heavy bleeding and painful periods, the oral contraceptive pill isn't the best, best method. We're looking at a progestin only or really an IUD. Because if you're on an IUD, it allows your body to still have its ovarian hormone function. It doesn't downregulate. But what it does do is it moderates um, what progesterone does. So it kind of attenuates the way that the um, endometrial lining thickens. So it reduces the thickness. It reduces the immune response that causes the heavy cramping. So you end up not with heavy cramping, heavy bleeding. But GPs don't know that. They're like, oh no, oral contraceptive pill. And when we're looking at um, girls who are amenorrheic or have really irregular cycles and they're put on the pill because they're quote, well, this will give you a cycle, that's complete bullshit too because of the fact that it's not a real cycle. When you have a bleed on an oral contraceptive pill, that's not a true period. That's just a withdrawal bleed. And it doesn't have any kind of impact or indication of what's happening with your endocrine system. So I get very frustrated when young girls are put on it or high performance athletes are put on it because they have menstrual cycle dysfunction instead of trying to investigate what's going on. Then the other thing that um, is a bit frustrating is women who go on it to control and manipulate their cycles. If they have an undercurrent of heavy bleeding or menstrual cycle dysfunction and they're not sure when it's gonna come, and they go in on OC so they don't have to worry about it, they're still masking an issue. Um, so yeah, I'm always the person who is like, well, let's see what your natural cycle is. And if there's lots of issues, there are other things that we can talk about and we can see someone, we can talk to an endocrinologist so we can get what's going on first and try to fix that problem before putting you on an OC. The OC might be the answer for you, but it doesn't have to be the definitive quote, fix, because it's not a fix. I totally agree with that. Um, I'm even just thinking of, you know, like when I was put on um, an OC when I was 17, I had really terrible response to it and became like super depressed. And I had such bad mood swings that they put me on an antidepressant. And so, oh, so you're double medicated. Right. I was like, and I remember being put on the antidepressant and being like, something about this seems very wrong. Like, this doesn't seem right. And I remember going back to my doctor and saying, you know, like, this doesn't, this isn't working. Like, I don't know why I have to take two medications now instead of no medications. I don't understand what, where this disconnect is. And I had to really advocate for myself to be taken off of both of those things. To the point where I remember my doctor didn't even want to take me off of the antidepressant. I had to, I just stopped it because I was like, yeah. I'm not going to take this. I'm not going to take this. So we have to find a new solution here. What, and I know that I did not do it in a way that was probably, I've never done anything in a way that makes total sense until recently. But um, I know that the way that I took myself off of hormonal birth control and the way that I stopped taking antidepressants probably wasn't the best way because it could have ended um, worse than it did for me. Yeah. Um, but what if, if people are listening and they're saying, you know, like that sounds like me, that sounds like I really maybe was inappropriately prescribed a birth control or um, maybe there's a different option out there. What is some advice or I don't know, some like words of encouragement to advocate for yourself in this situation. Um, so you 
when you go see your GP, your general doctor, know that they know a, a little bit about a whole bunch of stuff. So if you want to advocate for yourself and you're coming in and saying, hey, these are the resources I got from Boston Children's Hospital, because Catherine Ackerman does a lot, especially in her female athlete clinic. And there's lots of resources posted on her page. Um, there's a couple of reproductive endocrinologists that are having lots of really good information available too. And it's just being armed with that information so that when you go talk to a GP, you can show them the evidence or you can say, no, I'm not Dr. Googling. I'm actually looking for scientific evidence. Um, if they're not listening, and I know it's really hard, especially in the States, to change physicians because of health insurance things. But if you can change physicians or get a referral to an endocrinologist, it's a much better option to have those conversations. Um, so, yeah, it's. It's a difficult one, and because there's such a lack of information, if you go in and say, I want to be on an IUD instead of an OC, they'll probably look at you like, what? But there's more of an uptick, and we're seeing it in the data, of younger women who are gravitating away from the OC and going to an IUD. And the fear of the IUD was misplacement or you know, it falling out or migrating, and all those fears have been reduced with the new technology of using ultrasound guided placement um, and using a, a low dose progestin type IUD really helps as well. So it, it's really understanding what you were experiencing before you went on an OC and saying, hey, wait a second, that was a problem that wasn't solved by being on an OC. I wanna get my natural cycle back. So you can just start down regulating. Um, going from the OC to an IUD, then you can track basal body temperature to see, you know, when you have an uptick in your temperature means it's after ovulation, so you can start to see when your cycles are coming back. Um, or you can try to go completely off of it and see what your cycles are now, knowing that it takes around three to four months for things to start to settle. Uh, so there are different options, but having the availability to go in with the knowledge from resources that are available primarily from endocrinology sites, I really recommend looking at Katherine Ackerman's site from Boston Children's Hospital because she's done an amazing job putting resources up, as has Emily Krauss out of Stanford. So they both have really fantastic resources for the active female or female athlete to be able to understand it and be able to have those conversations. I had such a similar experience to Ariel and what sounds like so many women that it's like you go in with a problem and birth control is the answer. Um, I remember being like going for heavy periods and I was like, well, two birds, one stone. I also am not ready for children yet. And then just like completely lost my libido. And so I used to always joke, I'm like, well, birth control, like basically helped me just be abstinent. So yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to have sex. I totally wasn't going to have a baby anyway. Um, but yeah, there you go. I didn't even have, I just had to completely kill my drive. Um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, super healthy. Um, yeah. So that was something else that I know neither Ariel nor I, um, sorry if I'm self disclosing for you, Ariel, um, use hormonal birth control anymore. And we have used, um, you know, thermometer and tracking your cycle methods. So if people are listening to this and they're like, okay, I think I do want to cycle off a hormonal birth control or an IUD doesn't sound right for me. There are ways to, um, kind of track this and stay safe. If we want to use those words, if that language feels good. Can you dive into what some of those options could be for people wanting to train and track their cycles and, and stay off of hormonal contraceptive? Yeah, for sure. I'll add to that conversation. When I was 18, I went to um, a doctor because I had secondary amenorrhea. And um, my mom had to take me because it's a military doctor. He didn't say anything to me. He just talked to my mom and then recommended I go on the pill. And I was like, mm, no. So um, I didn't, it was a really bad first experience and it took me years and years and years to go back to a doctor. But when I heard the word secondary amenorrhea and then got to university, I understood what it meant. I was like, I need to eat. So I then was able to get my cycles back. But I've just, I used the um, basal body temperature method for a very long time and have not been on any kind of HC because of all the issues that come with it for me personally. So when we're talking about basal body temperature and knowing when to be safe, your um, 
body temperature drops right before ovulation because with an estrogen surge, your temperature drops. After ovulation, your temperature starts to come up by around 0.5 degrees C or around one degree Fahrenheit. So if you're tracking, you can see a drop and then an uptick. So if you're trying to stay safe and you can see these drops in an uptick, then you know that you wanna abstain two days before that drop and then about three or four days after your temperature starts to come up because that's the fertile window. If you are like, I'm not really sure how to do this, then you can use apps like HelloClue, um, Moody app. Both of those are more fertility-based and explain temperature and, and how to track and when to stay safe. But really they're telling you when you can not abstain so that you can become pregnant. Whereas a lot of my athletes are like, yeah, that's the no-go window right there. I'm not going there. Um, so their whole thing is about you're ovulating and they're like, I'm not having sex. <laughs> so like, there are apps out there that can really help you be able to track it and you don't have to mentally think about it because the app is telling you. You'll see a big flash up that says, you're in your ovulatory window and people are like, yeah, okay. So there are things out there that can help from a femtech point of view. It's so cool that there is so much technology now that we can utilize because I I remember when I was coming off of birth control, I was like, I literally don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm just going to kind of like, going to have to figure it out. And I was literally tracking with, before I got my Daisy thermometer, I was tracking with um, just my calendar and just basically guessing. And it was terrifying every single month. I was like, let's let's see what happens this month. Yeah. Like, we're hoping for the best year. Um, we got through it. Sweet. Right? Exactly. Yes. Hallelujah. <laughs> exactly. Well, I talk about celebrating wins all the time. Like this was yeah. the ultimate every month I celebrated a win. So yeah. maybe it was Perfect. a thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it is really cool now to see so much technology around um, tracking your cycle. Like I also heard um, Lindsay from BirthFit had also mentioned that Whoop now has a feature to track your um, basal temperature. Yeah, the new 4.0. So the 3.0, it just has a menstrual cycle togging. Um, but the 4.0 will track not really basal temperature, but skin temperature. Mm. It's a little bit, it's a little bit of a misstep because skin temperature really takes the aspect of what's happening in the room. But at night is when they get most of their data. And so it's a pretty constant, um, I guess, a variable when you're sleeping. So they can see what the metrics are and have an estimate on that. Um, what I don't know in their algorithm is if they've taken into the account that when your core temperature goes up after ovulation, you have more vasodilation, so your skin temperature is actually down. I have to check that out. I haven't, I haven't asked yet. I will ask them that because it could be a bit confusing if you're looking for an uptick and on the skin temperature, it's not, it's a downward. So just be aware that that That's can happen. super interesting. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. So maybe I'm we're like not going to use our in, Yeah. Sticking with my <laughs> other thermometer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Stick with your normal BBT. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so are there any other on the subject of technology, are there any other, um, I don't know, like female biohacking technologies that we don't know about right now? I feel like you are the person to ask about this. My world is in that femtech. I mean, like I work with Wild AI and that uses artificial intelligence to learn your cycle. So, you know how I was saying, if you're tracking and you're writing down how you feel, if you use something that uses artificial intelligence like wild AI, then it feeds back. And so you don't have to do all of it. It tells you. So that's a good way for people who are getting into tracking to understand. Um, I do a little bit of work with super sapiens. So super sapiens is interesting because right now we don't know anything really about continuous glucose monitoring in athletes. We do know that women will wake up in the night, not really aware that they're waking up because they've become hypoglycemic if they're not eating enough. So if they're a little bit on the low energy level and they keep having these little perturbance, it's because they're hypoglycemic. So we know that having 40 grams of protein before bed really attenuates that to get into a better sleep. Um, some of the other things that are coming out, uh, we're 
like um, Mint Diagnostics based out of the UK is doing saliva testing. And it's to look at hormone perturbations because we hear about, you know, your normal menstrual cycle and everyone in the general population thinks that, you know, you have this constant level, but you have these pulsations of your hormones every day. So if we're doing saliva testing, then we can see really where you are, when you ovulate, what's happening in the high hormone phase. That's interesting technology that's coming out that will allow that individual variation to really come to the forefront conversation, which I think will be even more empowering for women. So those tend to be the big three spaces that are coming out, like continuous blood glucose monitoring, tracking your cycle, and then using saliva for hormone analyses to, to again, give you that extra layer of what's going on from an individual scope. Those are amazing resources. I have like four extra tabs open on my computer now to go look at these after the show. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. I think the coolest part is that um, there's so much, there's so much um, power in understanding our bodies. And I think that for a really long time, it was kind of this taboo subject of like, oh, we don't talk about that. It's like potty talk. Like you don't talk about pooping. So we're not gonna talk about our periods. But it is really something that can be a superpower for us if we are looking at it and understanding the mechanisms that are actually happening in our bodies. So I cannot express how grateful I am that you are doing the work that you're doing because I know that there's haters, but there's also so many people that are benefiting from the message that you're sharing. So thank you for that. And thank you for Thanks. Yeah. Seriously. It's going to hate, but we're going to talk about poop and periods, my guys. (laughs) All right. That works for me. They are not mutually exclusive. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you again so much for being here. If people want to find out more about you, if they want to keep up with what you're doing, where can they do that? Um, so the Dr. Stacey Sims website has a lot of the stuff that I'm doing. Um, we link my academic stuff from AUT. We have a female athlete performance program that lists all of our research that's going on. I'm pulling that over to the Dr. Stacey Sims site. So keeping tab of industry and academia, that's the best site. But if you want to see what I'm up to on a day-to-day, then social media on Instagram and Facebook is Dr. Stacey Sims. That's me. Amazing. And everyone has to pick up a copy of Roar because I'm not kidding. And I'm, I know I'm dramatic, but I'm not being dramatic when I say that it changed my life because it was a game changer for me this year when I read it. So everybody needs to get a copy of that as well. Um, Thanks. But thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you so, so much for being here. And, um, yeah, that's all I got. I'm kind of speechless now. That's all I got. <laughs> Thank you. We'd love to have you back. Thank you so much. We have so many more questions and oh, yeah. we'll have to bring you back on if you've got the time. Yeah, I'd love it. It's fun. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.